Listening to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio, broadcasting live on 88 FM and streaming on the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. Later in today's show, I'll be speaking live with Liberal Senator David Fawcett, who asked Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong in Parliament last week whether the Albanese Labor government will be changing its position on the legality of Israeli settlements and the language it uses to describe the occupied territories. And to wrap up, I speak with Ilana Kaplan, who tells us about a very special boys' school in Jerusalem. My first guest is Stephen Flato, a father of five whose then 20-year-old daughter Elisa died in April 1995 following an Iranian terrorist attack while she was a student in Israel. Stephen has written an article, Should Israel Refer to Australia as Occupied Aboriginal Territory, in which he suggests Australia's Labor government ought to take a look in the mirror before hurling false and insulting accusations at Israel. I'm welcoming Stephen Plato to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio, coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. Welcome to the program, Stephen. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. Now, Stephen, please tell us a little bit about yourself so our listeners know uh, where you're coming from. Well, I was born in um, a little section of New York City called Middle Village. Uh, I spent the first 12 years of my life there, and, and that's what formed most of my attitudes to this very day. Uh, then moved to Muncie, New York, before it became Muncie, New York, as we know it today, which is a very large Hasidish, Yeshivish, Orthodox uh, community. I married my wife, Rosalind, in 1970. Actually, today, the 15th of August, is our 53rd um, wedding anniversary. I'm a graduate of Brooklyn Law School, and I have been in the uh, title insurance business. Uh, it's a real estate-related business. Since 1973, I'll be celebrating my 50th anniversary of that um, in September. In April of uh, 1995, our oldest daughter, Elisa, was on a bus that was bombed by Islamic Jihad. Uh, She and seven others uh, died in the attack. Uh, Using an American law, a year and a half, two years later, I started a lawsuit against the Islamic Republic of Iran and eventually recovered a judgment of roughly a quarter billion American dollars. That's when the fun really began, because uh, I found that the United States of America was now opposing my efforts to collect from Iran for their involvement in the terror attack. Uh, We were able to uh, resolve the American government's uh, involvement uh, in 2001, and since then I have become a uh, speaker, or I'll call it an activist for terror victims' rights. I am a Zionist. I actually hold dual citizenship between Israel and the United States of America. Love that little country that is home for Jews wherever they live. Right. I 
decided that I would like to speak with you because you wrote a piece for the Jerusalem Post titled, Should Israel Refer to Australia as Occupied Aboriginal Territory? And I see on the article that it's garnered more than 200 comments. What motivated you to express this view of Australia, which follows on from the hardening of our Labor government's attitude in favour of the Palestinian side? Uh, It seems that uh, the new government in Australia has reversed what the previous government um, had done with respect to Judea and Samaria. They're going back to calling it an occupied uh, Palestinian um, territory. I thought that was um, uh, pretty nervy. Chutzpahdik would be the right word in, in Yiddish. We didn't make up that name of Judea and Samaria. It's been a biblical name. It's It's been in use for 2,000 plus years. It's it's referenced not only in the, the you know Tanakh and the Torah and the writings, but even in the uh, in the Christian Bible as Judea and Samaria, Australia to all of a sudden rename it. I thought was really overreaching. Uh, there's never been a Palestinian territory, Palestine, um, out of a um, a Roman sense of uh, let's crush the Jews and and change the name of their homeland. Uh, so this this concept of uh, the West Bank. Um, Judea, Samaria, uh, being Palestinian territory uh, at, at this stage is absolutely um, ridiculous. And I, I just wanted to uh, straighten out the historical record with the, with the hope that maybe somebody in the Australian government would see it and realize how uh, distorting their position uh, is at the present time. But given the, the, the way that this uh, argument goes, Aren't you buying into the tropes that are bound about uh, colonization by taking attack uh, such as this? Well, I, I think that foreign countries have to leave the the resolution of what happens in Judea and Samaria uh, to the Israelis and to a um, to a small extent the, the Palestinians um, who live in in their own areas. Uh, you know, in uh, 1995, 1996, uh, Yitzhak Rabin, in effect, uh, placed uh, 98% of Palestinian Arabs under the jurisdiction of the uh, the Palestinian Authority. And then over a slow, you know, a short period of time thereafter, Israeli uh, forces left those uh, communities. Only time that they return is when there is terror attacks and the Palestinians have not lived up to their um, their obligations to disband the terror groups that live in their uh, in their territories. And the events of the last uh, few months, especially involving uh, Janine, have indicated that the, the Palestinians have totally defaulted on their uh, so-called Oslo Accord um, obligations. It's a fine line. What I always say is that uh, Israel is not disappearing, despite what the Palestinians uh, would like to have happen. And, and I also have to you know, point out that when uh, the Palestinians talk about reclaiming Palestinian land, they don't mean Judea and Samaria. They mean the entire state of Israel, uh, literally from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean. As we know from history, um, the Arabs uh, have tried to eliminate Israel since 1948. Thank God they have not been successful. The strength of the Israeli public to continue to live in the Sumerian and Judea is something that that we in the diaspora should be able to take great strength from. 
But should we also be referring to the United States as occupied Indian territory, Stephen? Well, absolutely it is. But my, my point in the article was just to show how hypocritical it is um, that the government of a country would, would criticize another country where, where the logic is missing. In other words, we know that, that the United States, we know that Australia was basically occupied by others when the original colonists, when the original uh, settlers came. So I, I was just trying to, to point out that they have no right to to stick their nose into Israeli um, Israeli affairs and, and say that, well, these are now Palestinian territories where they never were. And stop harping back to the so-called aboriginal claims uh, of the Palestinians when there aren't any. And the same thing would apply to the United States. Uh, obviously, the United States displaced through physical force, through war, through disease. They, they replaced the, the native population that was... Um, here in um, in the in America, and you know, I always get a kick out of um, you know we were taught as children. Uh, I hate to date myself, but back in the fifties, that the people who lived here were Indians, and, and they called them Indians because Columbus thought he had landed in India, so it, it was natural. Uh, now in America, we refer to them as um, Native Americans, and, and I think that's that that's very appropriate. But for America to point the finger at Israel and say that what you're doing um, to the so-called Palestinians uh, in the territories is very hypocritical and, and it really shouldn't uh, it really shouldn't stand. So do you believe that Israel should be annexing Judea and Samaria? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, first of all, uh, I, I know that here in the United States, I'm not that familiar with efforts in um, in Australia, there is a um, a vocal but small crowd, of Jews uh, and a larger crowd of, of non-Jews uh, who believe that uh, Israel has no um, uh, place uh, in the West Bank and Judea and Samaria, and therefore they should turn it all over uh, to the um, to the Palestinian Authority. But I, I think that's that's left to the Israeli voters to decide when they place a government in power uh, to determine what the future uh, is going to be. So how do you envisage that this uh, long-running Israeli-Palestinian dispute uh, is going to be resolved? Not all conflicts have solutions. Certainly, some of the current proposals are more dangerous to Israel than others. For instance, harping on going back to the, uh, the borders as they were in 1967 brings Israel's waste down to a narrow nine miles. Uh, there's anecdotal evidence that before the start of the Six-Day War, uh, I was only uh, I was only 19 years old at the time and wasn't fully involved in reading everything that came across my, uh, you know, came across the kitchen table, is that there's stories that, that parents who lived in that narrow waistband, uh, Haifa, Tel Aviv, that, that area there, kept their children home from school because they were afraid that if war broke out, a Jordanian tank column would run right to the Mediterranean and, and literally cut the country um, in half. I did hear one true story. Uh, well, when I say true, it definitely was a true story, but it was told to me by the person who heard it. They lived in Haifa. Sometime in May of 1967, there was a knock on his parents' door, and the mother opens it, and there's an Arab woman saying, you better get out now because we're going to be back here within a month. 
there was uh, expectation among the, um, uh, the the Arab population that the Jews were going to be annihilated in 67. So returning back to those borders, which uh, I think Abba even can, can take credit for calling the Auschwitz borders, it's, it's not going to happen and it, and, and it should not happen. Now, I've been a little bit remiss uh, by not mentioning that uh, you are on the board of the Religious Zionists of America, the Mizrahi movement, and there uh, the mission states that you're striving to build a strong bridge between Israel and the American Jewish community, support the state of Israel, and ensure that American Jews are connected to and taking responsibility for the state of Israel and the future of the Jewish people. So do you sense that your mission these days is seriously hampered by American Jews who are becoming more and more antipathetic towards Israel? Um, I, I still believe that it's actually a small but very, very vocal population amongst um, American Jews that um, advocate for the Palestinian cause in, in, in Judea and Samaria. I think that what we we have to recognize is that they're very talented when it comes to organizing, when it comes to demonstrating. They are making life for uh, Jewish students on American college campuses miserable by sponsoring uh, apartheid days, um, sponsoring days where uh, Jew, Jewish students don't feel um, safe on campus. They erect um, fake walls and and they lie in the ground with blood on them, and they, you know, they accuse Israel of apartheid. And anybody who's who's been to Israel with with their eyes open knows that if there is a country that is not apartheid, it's Israel. Look, we have Arab members of the Knesset, we have Arab Supreme Court judges, we have Ethiopians who have been welcomed uh, into Israel. Their 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 ride has not been easy. Uh, but at the same time, Israel is making an effort to incorporate the Ethiopian uh, population. And I understand there's even a move now to bring more in from Ethiopia as that, that country goes through more turmoil. Uh, I, I don't think we should give too much credit uh, to those loud voices here in America. But at the same time, what, I, what I've what i noticed is a lack of, of amongst uh, American Jewish students, uh, whether they're in public school or day school, uh, as to the uh, the Zionistic history of the state of Israel, yeah, they know their they know their Tanakh, but but they they don't have a grasp on who people like David Ben Gurion and, and Jabotinsky or or Menachem Begin. I uh, I have taken uh, my grandchildren, my older grandchildren, at least twice to the Begin Museum in Jerusalem, and just to listen to Menachem Begin speak. Every time I hear it, it gives me chills down my back. Unfortunately, our boys and girls, uh, the young ones and even the college kids don't understand it. So one of the things that we're going to be looking at at the Religious Zionists of America is getting educational modules into the yeshiva high schools, especially as, and, and the elementary schools um, as well, uh, to give them a good dose, a vaccine, if you will, of modern Zionist thinking. Am I saying they have to read uh, Herzl's original, you know, original works? Uh, that's kind of heavy, but, you know, um, John Matinsky's Iron Wall is really a pamphlet. And uh, everything he said in there is true, uh, that the Arabs are not going to accept us until we stand up for ourselves. 
even going back to the Torah, it very clearly says that if you don't remove these people from your territory, they're going to be like uh, uh, pins in your eyes and pricks in your side. Uh, the Almighty knew what we were going to be facing, and, and, and we still have to rely on our faith at the, at the end of the day in accepting and, and appreciating that Israel's our home. And what I'm often fond of saying is, is that, you know, a strong Israel means a strong diaspora jewelry. My thought is, in, in all honesty, that if there was no state of Israel, diaspora jewelry would have withered on the vine. We need that magnet. We need that lodestar. That's the state of Israel. One of the things that always in, in, impresses me, you know, Yom Hazi Karon and Yom Hazmut follow Yom Hazi Karon. So on one day, you're having your kishkas taken out. And the next day, you see this country. And uh, from my balcony in Jerusalem, I can watch the, the planes fly overhead. They, they fly very slowly. And all I can think of is what the world would have been like if we had a country in 1944, 1943, 1939. If we had a place that would have been able to welcome in people, we'd be in a totally different position we are today. But this is the hand we were dealt, and this is the hand that we're still um, playing out. I think it's your views that uh, are very important uh for the uh, continuance of the Jewish people uh, and the maintenance of uh, of Israel as a as a homeland for for Jews and the, the Jews who are straying away from uh, from principles of Judaism Zionism ultimately will be will be lost. You're you're the strength uh, that's necessary to keep us going. Now, a couple of weeks ago on this show, I had an expert on. Iran prognosticating on what might happen between Israel and Iran. Now, the United States, your country, continues to look at making deals with Iran, and there's one uh, recently uh, on the cards which includes a prisoner swap involving heaps of uh, money, billions of dollars that would be released to uh, help Iran, supposedly uh, to go to good causes and not to be used uh, for evil purposes, but one can doubt uh, that this might uh, happen. Are you actively involved in thwarting what U.S. efforts are to accommodate Iran? In the 1990s, when I was uh, dealing with the American government, one of the most disheartening experiences I had was when the uh, United States decided they were going to approach Iran. They were going to try to get them to the negotiating table and at that time, I said, I have no problem with getting Iran back to the negotiating table if they're interested, as long as they basically confess, if that's the right word, or admit that they had been state sponsor of terrorism and they give it up. And the United States just bent over backwards, embarrassing itself. Uh, you know, at one point in time, the Clinton administration lifted sanctions on pistachio nuts, Persian carpets and uh, caviar, as if that was going to um, uh, change the Iranian mindset, which is anti-Western. Uh, forget about anti being anti-Israel, that, that we know, but it's anti-West. It's a strict theocratic state, as we have seen over the last year with the, um, uh, with, with the quashed revolution. Um, George Bush uh, gave us a, a little bit of a break because he really wasn't active that, that active at all. Um, in the Middle East. And then once um, politics changed back over to the Democratic side, this this whole concept of negotiating with Iran is uh, very frightening. 
one of the things that I learned is that Iran, back in 1995, was funding Islamic Jihad the tune of about two to three million dollars a year. And uh, Islamic Jihad was the group that murdered Elisa. Uh, they took credit for it. And the State Department said Iran is their bankroller. And that's why we were able to sue the Iranian government in the United States. When we came to terms with the Clinton administration, we had identified approximately $400 million in Iranian money that was being held in the United States. And we said to the Clinton administration, we want that money to go to terror victims. And they said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pay the terror victims a total of about $400 million, and then we're going to offset that money with this Foreign Military Sales Act account. This is 1999-2000. Obama's in the White House, and he decides he's going to release $2 billion to the Iranian government. And they did it in such a, a, a strange way. They took American currency on an airplane. They flew to Switzerland, I believe it was. And they changed the money from American dollars into the euros or Iranian thing, whatever it was. So it turns out that that $400 million that was going to be paid to the terror victims was actually released back to the Iranian government after the victims had been paid by a number of years. So now we're seeing this hostage situation, payment for hostages, and it's not the first time it, it's happened. The Obama payment released a couple of Iranian-Americans. Uh, this six, I believe it's $6 billion that is going to be released will release some other Americans. And no one seems to understand that money is fungible. When Secretary of State Blinken says, we're going to control where that money goes, all it does is frees up $6 billion elsewhere for the Iranians to use to sponsor terrorism. And Israel is not its only target. Europe is its target. America is its target. Australia is most probably a target. And we're basically putting money in the bank for Iranian terror. To me, that is, it's disgraceful, uh, disgraceful conduct. But I haven't come to expect much more from uh, Democrat administrations um, here in the United States. So we're going to have to, it looks like, um, bite the bullet. I, I don't believe that America's Congress is strong enough to uh, counter that type of uh, machination, and Iran will become stronger for it. Well, there are words that we need to heed, I think, from you, Stephen, and uh, I really appreciate you speaking with me today, giving us your strong views on uh, what's uh, happening between uh, Israel and uh, the rest of the world. Thank you. Thank you, David, for speaking to your listeners. I don't know what time it is where you are, but it's um, 10.20 here at night in, in, in New Jersey. Thank you very much again. My pleasure. You've been listening to an interview I recorded a couple of hours ago with Stephen Flato, who has written an article, Should Israel Refer to Australia as Occupied Aboriginal Territory? Senator David Fawcett is a Liberal Senator for South Australia and the Deputy Chair of the Australian Parliament's Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade. Senator David Fawcett stood up in Parliament last week and asked Australia's Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, whether the Albanese Labor Government would be changing its position on the legality of Israeli settlements and the language it uses to describe the occupied territories. 
So welcome to the program, David. Thanks, David. So uh, just to kick off, uh, David, I'm just going to play uh, a short audio grab from uh, from last week where uh, you asked some questions to Penny Wong and we'll take it from there. Okay? Sure. Senator Fawcett. Thank you, President. My question is to the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Senator Wong. Will the Albanese Labor government be changing Australia's position in terms of how we describe Israeli settlements as being legal or not under international law? Will the Albanese Labor government also be changing Australia's position to formally recognise such territories as occupied Palestinian territories? Uh, Minister Wong. I thank the Senator for the question and I acknowledge his interest and expertise in national security and foreign affairs matters and what I would say to him is that this government is guided by the principle of advancing the cause of peace and progress towards a just and enduring two-state solution. And it is clear that viewing the conflict from one perspective will not achieve such peace and any lasting solution to the conflict cannot be at the expense of either Palestinians or Israelis. So David, I'm sure you remember uh, the questions you asked last week and the response which has uh, been all over the media ever since. So what do, you, what do you make of Penny Wong's remarks that Labor's policy is guided by the principle of advancing the cause of peace and progress toward a just and enduring two-state solution? Well, my concern, David, is that uh, in fact by making some unilateral decisions around how to describe uh, territories and uh, whether they're legal or not, um, particularly essentially defining or making a statement that doesn't define boundaries um, but declaring them all illegal uh, actually flies in the face of the principles that both sides of politics have held to in Australia over a number of years, which is not to apply unilateral actions and the Oslo Accords, which was one of the few times where the PLO actually sat down with Israel, one of the specific prohibitions out of that agreement was unilateral measures uh, because it would undermine uh, movement towards a peaceful outcome. And so the context of those questions on that day was that there had obviously been a leak out of the Labor caucus and the media was starting to report there would be an announcement, but we hadn't seen any details. And so you'll, you'll have heard in the form of the question, it was basically seeking information as to what was the Albanese government actually proposing to do. If you wouldn't have uh, posed the questions, would uh, Penny Wong have made her statement uh, in uh, the parliament on that day? I don't know. She doesn't <laughs> confide those things to me, David. But um, uh, certainly the the leak was out. Media had been reporting. So if, uh, even if I hadn't asked the question, I'm sure at some point uh, members of the media would have uh, pursued her over those issues. Yes, whether it was in the parliament or uh, in front of the uh, media microphones. The, the statement that she made, though, in direct response to your uh, questions, uh, where... Um, she says that they're guided by uh, principles of advancing the cause of peace and progress toward a just and enduring two-state solution. Do you, do you really think that uh, by those actions that uh, she can actually say that? Well, look, I think there's some inconsistencies there. I mean, as the media, in fact, not just media, but a number of spokesmen, including people from the Labor Party, have indicated the... Um, 
National Conference of the Labor Party, which is being held sort of uh, late this week into the weekend, um, has obviously been a driving force for the timing of this. Um, both Prime Minister Albanese and Senator Wong uh, have been on the public record in the past, um, both in those conferences and in the Parliament, uh, sort of pushing for a harder position that's pro-Palestine. Um, so... You know, there's, there's not a lot of surprise there, but I think the timing has been very much driven by their national conference. But to the point of principle and, and her comment about rebalancing, um, I would actually say that if, if you make the, the contention that you are rebalancing by aligning with the United Nations when it comes to Israel, I think that's a very hard position to defend because the United Nations has been incredibly unbalanced towards Israel, uh, just in, if you look at the number of resolutions uh, concerning individual nation states in the period between 2015 and 2022, there were some 140 that were condemning Israel uh, and only 68 uh, for the rest of the world. And if you, if you look at what has occurred around the rest of the world, um, from conflicts to human rights violations to a whole range of issues, uh, that is unbalanced in anyone's terms, and to align Australia with that position, I think is actually cause for concern. Even Penny Wong would admit that the United Nations is, is biased and has been concerned about the reflections of that uh, on the whole issue. So how much damage would you say that uh, Labor's hardening of its stance on its interpretation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has caused? Well, we'll tell in a way by what happens this weekend obviously the intent uh you know there's two issues they're obviously trying to to um quell at this national conference one is around AUKUS and the agreement with the united states and the united kingdom over security and technology sharing uh but the other pertains to uh the israeli palestinian issue uh if Despite these um, changes that they have made to Australia's position, the I think what Michael Danby calls the, the socialist left of the Labor Party aren't happy and they push for a, um, a resolution to be moved uh, at the conference uh, despite these compromises, then uh, I think you'll see that it's actually just empowered um, the, the people who are pushing for a unilateral recognition of the Palestinian state. And uh, I think there's a, a fair bit of wisdom over the years going right back to Madeleine Albright uh, back in 1994 where she said you have to be really careful with language and anything that infers sovereignty uh, is actually going to detract from the possibility of, of final status issues being resolved successfully. Mm. So do you, do you believe that Labor is being ruled by political factions that are threatening to undermine the Albanese government if they don't get their way over key issues? Look, I doubt they would undermine the mm. government per se because they would want to see Labor remain in power. Um, but would they undermine his authority? Quite possibly. But I think the reality is they, they want their way on a range of issues. And this for a long time has been one of the, the key issues for the left of the Labor Party. Yeah, in my, my view, they, they want their way and it uh, overrides uh, the sort of moral and ethical consideration of issues in their own right. Well, and David, that's one of my concerns is that, you know, this, this whole issue is one of the most complex foreign policy, foreign affairs issues that has been in the world for decades. And the narrative which is put forward uh, is a very simple narrative about 
the land was stolen, it's been occupied, it should be given back. But it ignores the history of the Jewish people in Israel. It ignores the fact that even in the early part of the, the 20th century, when people were returning to Israel, the land they had there was bought legally. And so when the 1948 invasion occurred uh, by the Arab coalition and the ethnic cleansing of Jews from uh, a raft of areas occurred, um, it, it ignores all of that history, the legitimate claims that the Jewish people not just have from religion and history, but even legal claims to ownership of property um, through that. And so the, the sort of statements that came out that included Gaza, for example, you know, Israel withdrew from Gaza nearly two decades ago unilaterally in a sign of goodwill uh, and it was immediately occupied by Hamas who launched thousands of rockets in Israel and, and want to see Israel wiped off the map. Um, and yet this statement that was was made by the Labour Party just ignores and in fact gets wrong that fact. And um, so you need to question how much thought has gone into the facts as opposed to just pushing the simple narrative. Yes. On Mark Dreyfus's website, there's an article titled Labour's Policy on Israel and the Palestinian Territories that he published there when he was in opposition in April 2021. Now, I invited Mark Dreyfus to respond to what he wrote there, but apparently as a member of the Cabinet, he's bound by Cabinet solidarity and can only publicly support any decisions that are made in Cabinet. On his website uh, in that article, Dreyfus extols the so-called bipartisanship that's been a highlight of Australia's policy toward Israel. So would you say that Labor, under the direction of Albanese, have put paid to any nation any more of bipartisanship on the Israeli-Palestinian issue? Look, on some areas, they appear to be holding the line, and uh, Minister Wong was very clear that when it comes to the International Court of Justice, for example, the ICJ, that uh, Labor, at least at this point in time, will continue to oppose any referral of Israel to the ICJ. But the, the reality is the coalition has been very strong, and even on issues such as UN Resolution 2334, which uh, Foreign Minister Wong quoted, in 2014, uh, then Foreign Minister Julie Bishop actually got world headlines because she said, well, look, if we'd been on the Security Council, which we weren't at the time, she said we would have voted against that resolution, uh, which went to the issue of settlements, because she said there is nothing in international law, uh, and she is an accomplished lawyer that she could point to, uh, that actually indicated the settlements were illegal, and she said these sort of one-sided motions, which that one was, she said Australia has a long history of opposing. So for Senator Wong to make the claim that um, she's just returning to former positions is not actually substantiated by statements that former ministers have made. Now, on your website, uh, you wrote in October 2022... An article, State of Israel, Good Foreign Policy Requires Consultation with Allies and Other Nations. Labor argues that, in fact, it has been in touch with other nations on issues touching Palestine. Last month, the governments of Australia, Canada and the United Kingdom jointly said that they are deeply concerned about recent events in the occupied West Bank, including Israel's decision to expand its illegal settlements there amid rising violence, saying they further reduce the prospects for peace. And now Senator Wong argues that Australia's stance on Israel and Palestine aligns exactly with that of the UK and the European Union. Does this diminish any criticism that might be levelled at Labor for its policy shift? 
Well, again, I would argue that uh, the way they have actually uh, put their statement doesn't reflect the facts, and the, the point about Gaza is one. The fact that they talk about all settlements uh, being illegal doesn't reflect the fact that there are new buildings occurring in existing settlements and with the, the split of that territory, if you if you recall, going back in history, the, the West Bank was divided into three contiguous zones, uh, some of which weren't subject to final status negotiations. Uh, there's some pretty broad statements there that I, I don't think are consistent with previous Australian positions. And uh, again, her main comment was that she was aligning with people like the EU and the UN, and the UN I don't think is a body that we actually want to align ourselves with when it comes to issues around Israel. Now, I actually referred to the European Union, not the... Uh not the UN in that in that the last example, but uh, I want to say to you: Do you think that Labor is showing that it's too willing to overlook the pale state of the Palestinian society and its leaders, who are not doing much really to stop terrorist attacks against Israelis, and the spread of hate speech in their social media, and the preponderance of anti-Semitic tropes that are perpetuated via their education system? Well, I come back again to the simple narrative which is adopted by the, the left of the Labor Party regarding Palestine, and it ignores both the historical things I talked about before, but it also ignores all the points you've just raised. And in fact, in estimates uh, just this year, uh, we have raised with the Foreign Affairs Department uh, their ongoing funding for UNRWA when the education materials which are provided by the Palestinian Authority uh, to young children glorify uh, the whole concept of being a martyr uh, and I for one and I know a lot of Australians would object to the concept of taxpayers money going to actually support uh, the provision of educational material to children that incite violence and uh, again a lot of people call out um, things like settlements and say this is breaching things like the Oslo Accords and others but there's also very clear um, elements in those agreements which says that the Palestinian FPLO or now PA need to uh, confiscate illegal weapons, need to take active measures to stop terrorism and yet they're actively promoting terrorism. Uh, so if you combine that with the fact that um, they have been unwilling to engage with Israel on a number of occasions whether it's Camp David or right through to Prime Minister Olmert and his offer, I think it was 2008, uh, for peaceful solutions. And the fact that now um, the Palestinian, uh, or the people living in the Palestinian region, uh, have both the Palestinian Authority, which uh, has a whole bunch of questions around its efficacy, but then also Hamas, uh, which is sworn to the destruction of Israel, it's hard to see where there is actually a partner for peace for the Israeli government. Yes, uh, that's certainly a, a good, uh, a fair way of describing the, the situation. You know, my, my, my gripe is that uh, the, uh, we see criticism coming and it's levelled at, at both sides and uh, doesn't really look at the gravity of what uh, is happening on the Palestinian side. What's well, in, indeed, and in fact, many of the recent outbreaks or for many years now but even the recent ones of the outbreaks of violence you know a lot of the reporting highlights the israeli response in defense of its citizens but it doesn't highlight the coordinated and planned uh, attacks on civilians by terrorists and when they report on 
Palestinian children being killed, they don't report often that they're 14, 15-year-olds who are carrying weapons and engaged in violent activities. So there's a, there's a lot of bias in the reporting and the narrative that's presented to people. Now, you've highlighted a, a very uh, example that I uh, took to the ABC uh, about the uh, statement that children were killed and uh, no acknowledgement of exactly who they were wearing uh, military uniforms. I've only got a couple of minutes uh, with you still, uh, David. I just uh, don't know, you probably didn't hear the beginning of the show, but uh, I had uh, somebody on, uh, Stephen Flato, uh, from the US. Uh, he's never been to Australia, but uh, he um, has written an article titled uh, Should Israel Refer to Australia as Occupied Aboriginal Territory? What do you make of that suggestion? Uh, well, I think my answer <laughs> would be no. Um, they shouldn't, and uh, I have concerns about a lot of the narrative that underpins things like the debate around the voice, um, so no, I wouldn't accept that. Um, but I do think it's important that we look at history, and, and I think, uh, again, coming back to the situation with Israel, looking at the sort of mandate around the Transjordan, you know, post the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and, you know, the 1948 invasion, etc., you know, there is a whole raft of complexity here in which the Jewish people have a very legitimate claim. Uh, yes, there are people who weren't Jewish living in the area, um, but the narrative, which is very one-sided and portrays Israel as a illegitimate invader, I think is unjust in itself. And uh, I would be encouraging this government to not take unilateral decisions uh, that affect final status issues which actually empower and encourage people like Hamas and others. If you look at the people who welcomed their decision, yes. they're not exactly friends of peace. Well, thank you very much, uh, David, uh, for speaking with me on uh, the Israel Connection today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, David. Bye-bye. So you've just heard uh, Senator David Fawcett, uh, Liberal Senator from South Australia, talking about uh, Labor's moves last week, uh, hardening its uh, referral to Israeli settlements in a language describing the occupied territories. My final guest today is Ilana Kaplan, who serves as Boys Town Jerusalem's Australian Development Coordinator, and she tells us about a very special school. I'm speaking with Ilana Kaplan, who's the Australian Development Coordinator for Boys Town Jerusalem. Welcome to the Israel Connection, Ilana. You just came in off the plane. I did just come off the plane. Thank you for having <laughs> me. Well, thanks for... Uh, coming into our studio here and uh, we're going to ask you to tell us about Boys Town Jerusalem and why it's a special school. So Boys Town Jerusalem's been around for since 1948. It's uh, a school, the mission when it was set up was to give boys, orphaned boys from the Holocaust and boys coming in from Arab countries who'd been thrown out of the Arab countries a home and also skills so they wouldn't be a burden on society. So today it's the same. We have the same mission, but um, it's for boys who come from disadvantaged backgrounds and that can be a wide variety of disadvantage. Um, the vast majority of them come from very 
poor families. They might be kids who've been kicked out of every out of schools and no other school will accept them. Um, there's a wide variety of reasons why they might end up at Boys Town. It's a school that uh, is a high school, so it's from Year 7 till Year 12. Now we have a College of Applied Engineering, which has been around since the 50s. That was set up in conjunction with the IDF. The boys are anyone who applies to it, gets trained for specific units within the IDF, and then they do extra, a longer service than your average boy who graduates at year 12. The mission is to take them out of their cycle of poverty and to make them productive citizens of the State of Israel and that they can be contributing citizens of the State of Israel. And I mean, I see, I mean, I work there every day, so I see the kids who really wouldn't have a hope under normal circumstances, and they can be whatever they want to be and do whatever they want to do when they graduate in year 12 or if they go to the College of Applied Engineering after that to do whatever they want. I mean, we have kids who have gone on to be doctors, lawyers, judges, a lot of them career officers in the IDF. Every yeah. single part of society basically has a Boys Town Jerusalem graduate in working for them. <laughs> They're everywhere. According to uh, the information I've dug up from uh, website and uh, and from Wikipedia, intensive studies go on from eight a.m. to eight p.m. That sounds like a rigorous program. Well, it is a rigorous program, but the actual school day in Israel is shorter than it is in Australia. (laughs) So, you know, they go from first thing 8 o'clock in the morning and the school day actually finishes with the the regular curricula at uh, about 1, 1.30. But we like to keep our boys on campus as long as we can because we don't want them out on the streets or going back to their dysfunctional situations, family situations. So we have extracurricular activities, a wide variety of extracurricular activities which are chosen for specific purposes and that can go on till ten o'clock at night. You know, we'll keep right. them on as long as possible. We have, you know, dog training for example, because these kids don't come from homes necessarily where they have much love or parents know how to treat them. So they so they learn with dog training their self-esteem and also how to interact and care for some, you know, for an animal, care for others. They volunteer. Their volunteering is very big and it's compulsory. They volunteer and visiting people who are less fortunate than them, Holocaust survivors, poor people, take food distribution to people, the elderly, the sick, etc. You know, young people as well. It's uh, we have a lot of different things going on that occupy the kids and keep them on campus as long as possible. In fact, now it's the summer holidays and it's unlike Australia. Israel has a long summer, few months holiday, and uh, we have camp. They only have really two weeks off, I think, if that, a year, where there's nothing for the kids to do because we, we keep them occupied on campus as long as we possibly can. Would you like to run us through uh, the history of the Boys Town Jerusalem Foundation, which which founded the sure. uh, the Boys Town Jerusalem School in uh, Jerusalem itself? Okay, so originally it was set up in when, I, as I said, it was set up nineteen forty eight. Um, it was a, a rabbi from America that came to Israel specifically to set it up for these boys, as I mentioned previously. 
straight away they, there's an American foundation which they were automatic they were fundraising in America from the start. They set up a British Friends of Boys Town Jerusalem in the 50s and they've also got a Canadian Friends. Australia didn't start. Australian Friends of Boys Town Jerusalem didn't start until 2018. Yes. And uh, so that's what I do. I, I was employed to run that, the Australian Friends of Boys Town Jerusalem. So there are a number of offices, so there's a lot of support uh for the the school, the uh, the Israeli government gives uh, something towards the school, but you rely essentially on donations, don't you, to keep the school going? Yes. Yeah, so it, it costs fourteen million US a year to run. Half of that comes from government because it is a state school. The government covers for the the school day, which is from eight o'clock in the morning until one thirty in the afternoon. They don't cover the rest of the day. And we have boys who dorm. We, we're actually a dorming school, not under 14. They can get a bed from the age of 14. And every boy from the age of 14 is given a bed, regardless of whether they need it or not. And they're also given three meals a day because a lot of them don't get food at home. We have to fund that. We have to fund all the extracurricular and the day from 1.30 in the afternoon until 8 o'clock the next morning is what we fundraise for. So it's about... Seven million US. Hmm. Yeah. It's quite a bit. Yeah. So you advertised in the Australian Jewish News recently, which is uh, yeah. how I actually found out about uh, what you're up to. And when I saw the ad, it mentioned Kaddish and Simcha Twinning are offered. Do you want to explain what these entail? Sure. So first of all, um, these. The boys, as I said, they come in in year seven, so they're just before bar mitzvah age. A lot of these kids wouldn't have a bar mitzvah if the school didn't provide. So we hold up to, we can have 100 bar mitzvahs a year uh, where we, we do it on campus. It's not necessarily just because the families can't afford. A lot of there's there's high divorce rate, like 60% or so, and after COVID, the parents can't decide on... <laughs> Who's going to hold? They don't want one. Doesn't want the, the other one at the bar mitzvah. So generally, we're the neutral ground, and so we we do the bar mitzvahs on campus. Boys Town Jerusalem is quite well known in America. We do have a lot of bar mitzvah. We've had a couple from Australia as well, even though it's early days for Australian friends. But we do have you can twin with a bar mitzvah boy and give the boy a party if someone wants to do that or. Send to fill in. We've had people who've provided to fill in for boys for bar mitzvahs, etc. So that that's one way, one idea of helping the boys. Also, we do kaddish. There are obviously there are people around who require someone to say kaddish for them. So for a fee, we we actually put a plaque up and we remind people yearly. We send them out a a letter saying that uh, our boys say kaddish for anyone who who wants that service. So we spoke a little bit earlier about the fact that uh, some of the graduates of Boys Town, Jerusalem, have gone on to contribute significantly to Israeli society. Do you want to perhaps give us uh, a few names of of some of the uh, graduates who have become uh, prominent uh, after they left school? We've actually got... over 7,500 graduates. It's, uh, we have 900 this past year, and we we're just in summer holidays now, but the last year we had 900 
over 900 boys on campus, so you have a lot of graduates. <laughs> and uh, there's too many for me to actually give names of all of them, obviously, <laughs> but I can give you, you know, a cup. We have um, the head, he's not, I don't think he's anymore, but the head of Magen David Adom, Director of Training, Ayal Ben Attar, Yaakov Aflalo, who's IT Director of Rafa Pharmaceuticals, Judge Baruch Azulai, who was the Deputy President of Israel's Southern District Court, Ben Sion Eliasi, who's the... Ah, oh, we interviewed him actually during COVID. He, uh, he, he was the head of central, the command center for dis- distributing during COVID, distributing food, etc., to, uh, Jerusalem. And, uh, Major General Yoav Mordechai, Professor Ari Levy, president of Chemdat Hadarom University. You're just going back lots, to, uh, I've got lots of them. <laughs> to, ma- to ma- Major General, uh, you over Mordechai. He's actually re- retired now, I believe. Yes. But uh, he was actually the high-profile coordinator of Israeli government activities in the territories. Yes, yes, um, he was, yes. Yeah, certainly a significant yeah. uh, role indeed. And chief chaplain of Israeli Navy, who's also retired, Colonel uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ben Benayahu Yamus. So there's, there's a lot of them. There's, you yes. Know, no, yeah. no, head, no, of the, no. Uh, head of the Ashkelon uh, desalination plant is one of ours. We're everywhere. <laughs> Basically, if you you know you say to anyone in it's in Hebrew, it's actually it's called Kiryat Noar Yerushalayim. So if you were in Israel and you said to someone Boys Town Jerusalem, they'd look at you blankly. But if you say to an Israeli Kiryat Noar Yerushalayim, they'll go, Oh yeah, I know someone who went there, or I went there myself. Or <laughs> it's uh, yeah. yeah. Boys Town uh, reminds me of uh, an old Hollywood movie. Yes, actually, that's correct. where the name comes from. Yes, Spencer Tracy, I think it was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes, for those who can remember. Now, your current fundraising campaign coincides with the 75th anniversary of Israel's independence this year, and you're making special efforts, I understand, to celebrate 75 years of operation of Boys Town Jerusalem. Along with Israel's 75th anniversary, it's Boys Town Jerusalem 75th anniversary, so that's uh, a big celebration for us. And all over the world, we've got lots of different things happening. Uh, in Australia, we're holding our first event in Sydney. That's going to be on Thursday, the 24th of August, in a couple of weeks' time. It's at Nefesh. We've actually got the former Australian ambassador, Paul Griffiths, who was there until December, January just recently. Yes. He came to the school a year ago and uh, made a big impression on the boys as the boys made a big impression on him. So he's going to be our guest speaker. We've also been fortunate enough to have a graduate who was a graduate of Boys Town. He's also here, Avi Berkovitz. He actually flew into Melbourne last night. He's actually going to be speaking in Caulfield Shul this Shabbat about AI and Torah. And he's got an interesting story which he will be sharing in Sydney and we've also got a mission in Israel at the school in March in March before Pesach um, where we're having we're holding a you know we're going to take anybody who signs up for the mission they'll obviously come to Boys Town but we'll take them round to different places where our graduates work we'll be able to get them into Air Force bases and certain places where the average person can't get into and we've got a whole program worked out for I think 10 or 11 days.
So, yeah, that's uh, some of the yeah, things we're doing. Yeah, I just should doing. point out to listeners that this thing at Caulfield Shul will have actually been in the past. That's true. Because we'll be <laughs> on air after the event. So uh, if you're listening and you wanted to go, you've missed it. Uh, well, you can come to Sydney and you can uh, come and hear uh, Aviel talk there. Actually, he's going to be speaking in a few shuls in Sydney about AI and Torah as well. Mm. So, and I yeah. believe you've got a comedian being your moderator. We do. So now. it'll be entertaining for sure. For listeners who uh, don't know, and uh, we're, in, we're a Melbourne-based radio station, but we do recognise that uh, Sydney exists. <laughs> <laughs> so we have um, the Nefesh Centre, which is in Roscoe Street, Bondi Beach, which is where the event will be taking place for the 75th anniversary celebration of Boys Town, Jerusalem. Bookings are at bit.ly forward slash btj hyphen Wine tasting. So people there can is wine tasting. There's going to be have Israeli yes. wines, and we're going to do a tasting. <laughs> and if people want more information, they can email you. I understand. Yep. And you, I can give your email address. Absolutely. Uh, it's Ilana I L A N A at btj dot org dot au. Just before I say farewell and wish you good luck in your endeavours. I want to mention that you do have a memorial award which was inaugurated about uh, 27 years ago called the Jan Svartendick Memorial Award. Do you want to say something about that award? It's recognising humanitarian ethics and values. It's apparently named after a, a non-Jewish Dutch businessman who rescued more than 2,000 Jews during the Holocaust. That's correct, yes. We actually we have a, a memorial garden which we set up in commemoration of that in fact we had the danish ambassador there at the time when we were inaugurating that garden and we for us it's very important to recognize people who've gentiles righteous gentiles as well so we you know that that was the purpose of that yeah, one of the people that i note who was uh, given this award is the president uh, Manuel Luis Quezon and the people of the Philippines, apparently, which is, uh, I wasn't yeah. aware of uh, their connection with helping uh, Jews uh, survive the Holocaust. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I think that there was, at the time, there was a, uh, no one else was commemorating it and uh, that we'd come, Boys Town had come across the story, met somebody who was connected and decided to make a big of, bit of a deal about it because it is a big deal. Well, certainly Boys Town Jerusalem is a big deal. Yep. Uh, and Alana's the Australian Development Coordinator here in Australia. You live in Israel, essentially, but you're here to promote the work of Boys Town Jerusalem, and I thank you very much for speaking with me today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being with you, and it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.